scripture reading this morning is from Psalms, chapter 80, verses 1 through 7. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Amen. What an amazing invitation. Given to shepherds that first night. An invitation to come and see the birth of the Christ child. And an expression that had long been held throughout the Old Testament. God's desire to be his people's shepherd. Announced first to shepherds in that day. Throughout the Old Testament, God had been declared again and again as his people's shepherd. We know it most familiarly in the words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But we also heard it in the words of Psalm 80 that were read by Karen, declaring God is the shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. Awaken your might and come and save us. The Lord is the great shepherd who seeks to dwell in the midst of his people. Those two psalms pray that the Lord will essentially open his ear, shine forth, come and comfort and guide and lead and direct his people. The psalm in Psalm 80 declares, shine forth, show your might, come and save your people. A cry on the lips of that psalmist and a cry that people have made and declared throughout history. A striking feature of this psalm is its effective employment of two great images for God. God as Israel's shepherd developed briefly in the first two verses of Psalm 80 that were read. But if we read the rest of Psalm 80, we would see there that it also declares God as a planter or caretaker of a vineyard, which stands for the people of Israel. The first of these two images, God as Israel's shepherd, is a familiar way the Bible describes God's people who long for God's direction and guidance. In Psalm, uh, excuse me, in Isaiah 40:11, for instance, it says, "He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young." And so we may know that Jesus in his day, walking among his people, teaching people, said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. God, the good shepherd 
who seeks to lead and guide his people, comes in the person of his son, Jesus, fulfilling the hopes and the dreams of all the years to have a present shepherd who gives us the guidance, leading, and ultimately salvation that we need. It's helpful to know that the first use of the shepherding image for God in the Bible is the farewell words of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, recorded in Genesis 48. Jacob spoke of God as the one who had been my shepherd all my life to this very day, the angel who delivered me from all harm. This is a powerful statement as sheep are notoriously helpless and wayward animals and it's a difficult and full-time job to care for them. Jacob had cried out, asked and declared that God had been his shepherd, but Jacob had also learned something throughout his life about shepherding and that was how great a failure he had been when he was trying to shepherd himself. Self-shepherding means trying to run your own life. And Jacob was like many people today. He acknowledged God. He would have said that he believed in God. But in fact, he had often guided and directed his own life. And as a result, had continually taken his own path and followed his own direction. Rather than trusting in the wisdom and the word of the divine shepherd, God. As the psalm declares, only God can restore people. Only he can bring forgiveness of our sins just as Jacob needed and just as the psalmist needed and still we need today. God is the one who embraces us in forgiveness, who renews the covenant with us, relationship, and drives out the enemies of God's people. When God's face shines on his people, as the psalm declares, they are blessed with his presence and favor and will experience his salvation. The refrain again and again in the psalm is this. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. The great desire of God's people was to experience God as a present shepherd, guiding and directing them. But the reality that transpires in the psalm in the midst of it is that God had also related to his people in judgment because of their sin. The cry there in verse 3 is, How long will your anger smolder against your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors. The people of God had experienced separation from God and separation from his shepherding care because of their sin. And yet again, at the end of that part of Psalm 80, the cry again is found, Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. The the refrain following in the chorus is a description of Israel's present plight. It's an explanation why the nations needed to be restored. God was angry because of the sin of his people and so had allowed his people to experience the tears and the, the, the separation from him that they in their sins deserved. While God could marshal all heaven, all of his heavenly hosts to the aid of his people, 
He can also stand back and allow his people to experience the consequences of their actions so that they come to realize their great need. And so as the psalm expresses in a time when the Assyrians had overrun Israel and they were at a point of grief and loss and confusion over what was happening, the psalm cries out for a present salvation. In the past, God had related to the people of Israel as their savior. He had brought them out of Egypt as described in, in Psalm 80 verse 4. Who had, he had brought them out like a vine. Who had, and had driven out the nations and planted this people in the promised land. The psalm says he had cleared the ground for them and the vine, Israel, had taken root and filled the land. God, like a shepherd and like a, a, a vine dresser, had planted Israel within the promised land. He had cleared the ground, planted them and, and nurtured and cared for Israel. But they eventually turned their back on God separated themselves from him in their sin. So like a shepherd, like a, a, a vine dresser, somebody who cared for his vine, God continually reached out to his people, but found them again and again turning away. While in the past he had brought them out of Egypt and planted them in the promised land, they were at present at the time of Psalm 80, a ruined vineyard. They had experienced desolation. The walls of Jerusalem had been knocked over. The temple had been destroyed. They were not experiencing the the flourishing that God wanted them to experience because of their sin. But the psalm continues to cry out for restoration. And it says that that restoration will ultimately be centered on the Son of Man. The hope in the psalm is proclaimed in the final verses which look to the future and ask for revival and restoration by the man at your right hand, the son of man that you have raised up for yourself. It's impossible there not to think of Jesus Christ who used this title son of man for himself and who is the one through whom the fortunes of God's people are restored. Jesus would not only see himself and present himself as the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep, but he would take on that second image in Psalm 80 as well, applying the image of the vine by calling himself the true vine, the one essential enduring vine before whom all other vines are but types. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He also said, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. What Jesus is saying is, in echoing the psalm is that without Jesus Christ and his power, we cannot come to faith trusting in him as our Savior. Without Jesus Christ and his power, we cannot live a righteous life in relationship with God. Without Jesus Christ and his power, we cannot live in faith and trust in God, achieving spiritual victory or producing any spiritual fruit. We are utterly reliant on him as our good and true shepherd. 
And so the cry in Psalm 80 is that the people need salvation now, not just in the past when God had rescued his people from Egypt and brought them in the promised land. This was a present prayerful cry for God to intervene on behalf of his people. Return to us, it says, O God Almighty, look down from heaven and see. Watch over the vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Let your right hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Having reached this point of desperation, the psalmist encapsulates the cry of his people for God to intervene. They intensely know that they need God to look down from heaven and see and return to them and care for them and restore them. The cry for God to return literally is the cry turn. It's, it's almost acting, asking God to repent, to relate to them differently once again, to not act in anger or frustration towards his people, but to be Emmanuel, God with them in love and in care. The God through whom they were experiencing present judgment, they were praying and crying would intervene and come in salvation. And this cry is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus would come. The cry of the psalmist is, if you return, we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us. O Lord God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. The cries that if God would come and step into this world, look down from heaven and see, but come and intervene in person, in the presence of ultimately this son of man, the son at his right hand, that all will be well, that they will experience salvation and restoration. That cry, shine upon us that we may be saved, was ultimately fulfilled that night in Jesus' birth and the angelic visitation to shepherds who experienced the glory of God radiating upon them on that dark night sky and an invitation to come and see this newborn Savior who had not only looked down upon the earth and care, but come and intervened. Like a loving father, God moves to intervene and save his people. God doesn't just look down and say, oh man, I'm I'm sorry for what you're going through. Or that man, that's that's difficult, what what you're struggling with in your sin or in your separation from me. No, God looks down but then sends his son to save us. The angels came and announced that night that in the context of world history, God stepped in. Love came down. God would use the greed of a Roman emperor, Caesar, to fulfill the plan he announced in Micah 5.2. You see the decree of Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world leads to the fulfillment of God's plan to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem where the birth of Jesus would take place in order to fulfill what God had promised. But once there... 
Luke states the simple fact that there was no room for them in the inn available to them when Mary's time came. The only place for Jesus' birth to take place was one usually occupied by animals with a livestock feeding trough as his cradle, a setting hardly fit for the birth of a king. Yet Jesus, the beloved Son of God, did not shrink back at, this, at these modest circumstances. He even comes and, and lives and, and is born in, in such a humble place so that people like these shepherds who were outcasts in the society of his day could find a way to him and to ultimately experience salvation through him. Shepherds, as you may know, are classified with thieves and tax collectors and other assorted scum during their day. They could not keep the ceremonial law which restricted things like the touching of dead things. And so they weren't even allowed into the temple. They traveled around with loose habits and no fixed residence and few scruples about other people's property. Considered untrustworthy, the shepherds were forbidden to even testify in the court of law. Despite this stereotype, God invites them to come. I love the, the, the depiction there where the, the one shepherd touches Jesus. As if even just at his touch, there was a, an experience of new life. And we know that when Jesus grew up and walked among people, that he touched them and he healed them and restored them and brought them to to new life. So here, the visit of Jesus, the one and only Son of God, comes and shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks by night are invited in. It's significant that God would choose to invite his, to announce his son's birth to real shepherds rather than the religious elite of that day. For in contrast to the religious leaders who throughout Jesus' life and ministry would reject him and oppose him and eventually put him to death, these shepherds come ready and willing to respond. The shepherds belong then to the story not only to serve to tie Jesus to the shepherd king David, but also to show us that the poor and the maimed, the blind, the lame, all who are willing to acknowledge their need are welcome to come and receive the gift of this newborn son. I don't know how many people have been watching uh, Dallas Jenkins' The Chosen series, uh, but it's a wonderful depiction of the life of Jesus and, and, and his ministry. And uh, in their recent Christmas special, this scene was depicted in a beautiful and amazing way. You see, one of the shepherds uh, was, is, is, is lame. He walks on a, a stick and, and can barely keep up with the sheep and the other shepherds and their activity of caring for the sheep. And yet that lame shepherd is invited to come and see the birth of this newborn king. Those who are in need of healing, those who are isolated and outcast in society are invited to come. But just think about how many of Israel's heroes of old were shepherds 
Amos was a shepherd, one of the great prophets. David, of course, was the great shepherd king, brought out from shepherding sheep to lead and guide God's people. And so what we find is this confluence of imagery. The Lord, our shepherd, God, the shepherd of Israel, comes to shepherd his people through the giving and sending of his son, Jesus, and it touches the lives of real, everyday shepherds who are in need of hope, the hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings. The angel announcement caused the shepherds to go and see Jesus And I love the way the announcement from the angel comes. The angel, first one angel of the Lord stood by the shepherds and it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. It was night. The shepherds were minding their flocks and it it is almost generally agreed that in all probability, these were the temple shepherds watching the flocks intended for sacrifice in the temple. As the shepherds around Bethlehem, that was their primary job, raising up lambs, sheep that would ultimately be slaughtered in the temple. And it's to them, these shepherds, that the announcement that the good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep first comes. The angel and the heavenly host that announced that a savior, Christ, the Lord, was born. And not in palace halls, but in the fields to the poor and the lame is to those who come, the news comes first. The prophecy of Isaiah 61.1 is fulfilled here. That the poor have good news preached to them. So first a single angel appears and the shepherds are terrified and their terror is related to the visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord that shines down upon them. But then they hear these words, do not fear. Mephobu in the Greek, the angel is saying, look, I've got good news for you that can bring happiness and joy. I've come to announce that there is good news for all people. We're told that in the Greek that the shepherds feared an exceedingly great fear. And so the first thing that angel does is address those fears saying, do not be afraid. And in the passage then, in the angelic announcement that follows, many of the frequently used words in Luke's gospel like bring, good news, joy, today, Savior and Lord are all found here. For this is the culmination of, of the hopes and the dreams of all the years that are met with them and and to them that night. The message is that to a world lacking in joy who had not experienced God's revelation for centuries, now had the greatest revelation in all of history. The Lord, our Savior, the Messiah had come and had intervened in this world, stepped down into this earth to lift people up in salvation in relationship with God. The shepherds are included in the story because Jesus would come, not to the proud and powerful, but to the outcast and humble, those on the lowest ends of the social list of Jesus' day. It's to them that this good news comes. And the identity of Jesus causes the shepherds to go and see who he is. Because a Savior had been born to them, the Messiah, the Lord. Today in the town of David, in the town of the great shepherd king, a Savior has been born to you. 
and he is Christ the Lord. It's amazing that instead of Caesar, the angel was proclaiming Christ as Lord. Not the Roman Lord, not the earthly Lord of that day, but the great Lord of heaven and earth had now stepped down among them. And in contrast to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, so to speak, of that day, Jesus would bring an everlasting peace between God and man to all those who turn to him. So Luke emphasizes the work of Jesus on earth. He is born to save and will be raised to reign. The peace here is what the Messiah Jesus would bring to those he healed and forgave by faith. Jesus did not come then as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant who calls people to follow him in denying themselves and in serving others. This event then of Jesus' birth is the greatest that ever took place, the turning point of history. But what is revealed is hardly what is expected, and it would have no meaning for us unless God revealed that meaning. This is where the angel comes in as God's messenger who shines light on these events. The news then, which is spread by the shepherds, is then what they have been told about this child, not something they made up. And what God does in revealing himself to these poor shepherds is amazing because he creates or gives them a sign that would be something that would be kind of singularly for them. The sign was that they would find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. You see, the manger crib wasn't just because there was no room for Jesus in the inn, but the manger crib was that that would be a unique sign for them, for the shepherds. And it's amazing to me the way I see God continually revealing himself to people in unique ways that would be like a gift just perfectly given for them. A way that they, just they themselves, based on past history and present experiences, could see and experience the salvation of God. Jesus doesn't just come to humble circumstances uh, because there's no room in the inn. He comes in those humble circumstances so people like those poor shepherds can see him. And he still comes and reveals himself today. So that like the shepherds who respond and, and, and go and see Jesus, they cause us to realize that we can come and we can go and see Jesus now, today. The shepherds hurried off and they found Mary, Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger, presented in a way that they could see Jesus. But the good news is God still presents Jesus in a way that we can see him today through his love and care for us through his concern, through his compassion. When the shepherds had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And so what we see about the shepherds is true for us today. You see, the message and the sign of Jesus isn't just for us. God reveals himself to us, shows himself to us so that he can be seen then through us and other people can experience that joy as well. The shepherds, we are told, returned, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which is just as they had been told. 
When was the last time you praised God for all the things you had heard and seen in such a way that other people could hear it? We're meant to do that here in the sanctuary, in this safe place. But we're also meant to declare God's praises and what we have seen and heard of him in our experience out in the world so that other people can experience Jesus and his joy as well. You see, the good news is that he comes to all types of people, including the plain, the ordinary, the outcasts of society. Jesus wants to make his salvation available to all. He comes to anyone then whose heart is humble enough to accept him and welcome him in. Whoever you are, whatever you do, no matter what you have done, you can have Jesus in your life too if you would welcome him. I love the model of the shepherds here, coming and and welcoming Jesus, but then also going and sharing what they had experienced. With Mary, as shown in the video, treasuring up all that she had experienced. We're to treasure this also, church. To take great joy in our Savior's birth, but also to glorify and praise God for all the things we have seen and heard, which were just as the Old Testament prophets had foretold. So today, here now, nearly over 2,000 years later, how about you? What will you do? Will you seek Jesus? What if you find him? Will you acknowledge him and worship him? Even more, will you be willing to spread the news concerning what you have been told about this child who grew up and gave his life away in his death on the cross so that people can come, others can come and worship him as well? Will we make room? Welcoming him in our hearts or our hearts much like the the inns, the hotels of Jesus' day that had no room. The invitation still stands today to welcome him into the room of our hearts. To say, Jesus, come in and make all things new. Not just once or in the past, but presently come and save us and help us look forward to your ultimate eternal salvation. The invitation is not only to receive him and welcome him in then, but tell all you know. Be like those shepherds who told everyone who would listen all they had seen and heard. You see, the shepherds were not supposed to know much, but these shepherds had startling information, and you do too. You have the startling information that this world isn't just caught or stuck in separation from God, but that God came down and lived among us. The message was revolutionary, breathtaking, and transformative. It changed listeners' lives. And the joy is that it still changes lives today when people receive its truth. The shepherd spoke from the heart and the words connected to the deepest needs of others. And the great good news is that it still does that today. When you tell other people about Jesus, start with what you know best, your own life story and how God has intersected it and changed it because it's that power of your own, the own transformation of your life that has great power to speak into the lives of others today. 
Church, the world is hungry to know that there is hope, especially right now in our COVID-stricken world, in our divided world, in our broken world. They need to know that there is a Savior that we can come and see and touch and know that He's still present and at work in this world today and that we invite, when we invite Him in, He can make all things new. But then once He makes us new, He invites us to go and share that good news, to tell all we know about Him, that we have experienced Him. And if we have experienced Him, other people can too. So may we know that great invitation and rejoice in our Savior's birth. But let's not keep those rejoicing words and songs to ourselves. Let's go out and share the story so that other people can come in and experience him as well. Amen.